I would never buy a penny of a crypto token because they're unregistered securities, which means they're being manipulated in an unethical fashion by a central party. Whether or not the central party knows they're manipulating it or they don't understand. Some people generally don't understand the ethics. It doesn't occur to them that if you change the monetary policy of the token, you have, you have manipulated the value of the token, thereby defrauding investors in the token, right? When, when you turn off you know, yields to, big, to miners in the ETH ecosystem and you shift it to stakers, you have defrauded everyone that bought ETH based on ETH mining, and you have, you have actually robbed the miners of their property, right? You have devalued their property. So normally when you devalue the property of your securities holders, right, this class action lawsuit, right, they would sue you because you stole from them. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Michael Saylor. Michael, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. So, Michael, this is your first Bitcoin bear market since being deeply involved in the space. How are you thinking about the extreme volatility Bitcoin has experienced over the last 12 months? Well, I'm at, I've counted uh, three boom and bust cycles so far. <laughs> So even though I technically I'm only involved in this space since August 10th of uh, 2020, we did have a massive run past 60,000 and a crash when the Chinese, you know, banned Bitcoin mining. And then we had another run back above 60,000 and then we had a crash and then we had a, you know, kind of a false rally where it was moving up into the 40s toward the 50s and then we got the crash to here. So I, I would say, even though I'm a newcomer to the space, I'm starting to get used to the volatility. Um, you know, it, it's, it's impossible to know uh, the future, but uh, I, I think that when we got into uh, Bitcoin, I knew that Bitcoin is, um, is on one hand, uh, a really good thing. I mean, Bitcoin represents uh, the extreme... Uh, the extreme in uh, in asset um, in, in asset uh, responsibility, like the most well engineered, most ethical, most economically sound asset. So we can think about Bitcoin as well. If I if I wanted to invest in something, uh, and I didn't trust a company, and I don't trust a government, and I don't uh, I don't want to I don't trust nature. You know, it's possible there's a glut of oil or natural gas. It's possible that it's hard to move the natural gas a thousand miles or the pipeline burst. It's possible uh, that you buy into a company and the company changes its mission or it dilutes the stock or the CEO gets fired or maybe the CEO gets, you know, caught in a helicopter skiing accident and dies and, and you lose your money. It's possible that some some politician changes some rule, and uh, you know the the business that looked really good is not so good anymore. So there's a, a parade of horribles when you're investing in natural commodities or natural securities, and Bitcoin represents this uh, ideal extreme, right? It's it's all the benefits of a commodity, but it's uh, it's immortal, indestructible, and it's a scarcity. So I would rather have it than a uh, billion dollars of any kind of commodity. And it also represents the best of a security because there is no CEO, there's no board of directors, there's no product to ship, there's no ability to dilute the shareholders, there's no nexus, there's no headquarters. All the things that cause people to lose money investing in securities, uh, Bitcoin can't take on debt, therefore it cannot be rendered insolvent. You know. Um, so that's Bitcoin. It, it, on a barbell, it's like this extreme. And maybe one of the great ironies of life and history is that the exact opposite extreme is crypto. So, uh, so when you buy Bitcoin, you get the, the best asset you know, created in the history of the world. But then you had to stomach the very, very worst, worst assets and the worst circumstances because... If I look at uh, crypto, 
it's much, much worse than any commodity because it takes no energy to create it, right? You can create 20,000 cryptos, right? You can't create 20,000 silver mines in the snap of a finger. You can't even create 20,000 orange groves or, or, or bushels of corn or whatever. So it's, a, it's an infinite supply commodity, but it's also worse than every security because with securities, there are securities laws. Like uh, there's no way that the CEO of a publicly traded company would do to the company what people in the crypto industry routinely do all the time. So uh, crypto is kind of the worst of all worlds. It's, a, it's an unregistered security and it's an unbounded commodity. And uh, so here we are, we're in this volatile world, and you say, well, so how do I feel about volatility? <laughs> well, the, the source of a lot of the volatility is all of the vice in the crypto world, which is, which is just poorly engineered, unethical, not economically sound assets. And if you want the world's best engineered, most ethical, most economically sound asset, you have to agree to live in a world where it is cross-collateralized with the worst assets, and and you have to have the uh, a thick enough skin that you're willing to actually wait until the marketplace sorts out uh, the world's best asset from the world's worst assets, and uh, and uh, the price you'll pay is going to be that volatility. Yeah, in a way, Bitcoin, I guess, is the least uncertain asset there ever has been. Um, I think your quote, there is no second best crypto asset, is, like you said, kind of becoming more and more obvious. You know, we have the Ripple lawsuit. We have a small group of people changing the core consensus rules of Ethereum. Why do you think these tokens are still trading for, for billions of dollars? Um, I, I think that um, the regulators have uh have been fairly slow in their in uh enforcement of the regulations on the books everywhere in the world and uh regulatory enforcement actions both they're very expensive and they uh they take a long time and they're not they're not as effective as you'd like them to be um <clears throat> You know, uh, the the assets themselves are trading on offshore unregulated exchanges, and the exchanges have been cutting corners, right? If we if we take the FTX example, if you can set up an exchange where you're the market maker, you're the issuer, you're the prime broker, and uh, and then you trade against your own customers, what you have is a bunch of crypto casinos where they have a vested interest in creating the assets, promoting the assets, manipulating the price of the assets. And the regulators, for whatever reason, have been very slow to shut them down, right? Like, why, why did FTX even exist? Well, the, the U.S. regulators don't want to shut down, uh, you know, a, an illegitimate exchange offshore, and then when they see something they do want to shut down, it takes years and years and years to win the case in court. So I, I, I think it's been just really slow, expensive, ineffective execution of the existing laws on the books. And, uh, you know, they just don't keep up. So that's why the assets exist. I, I, I don't think they will continue to exist forever um, just because... FTX has, uh, has made it so obvious in the past uh, few months, right, the danger of, uh, of allowing these things to continue to exist, that I think that, uh, that the regulators and regulatory enforcement actions will get amped up by a, by a substantial factor in the coming year. Very cool. Yeah, um, going back to, to MicroStrategy, I vividly remember the day that you guys announced that you were considering Bitcoin as a potential treasury reserve asset, and it was very exciting. Why do you think many other public companies have not necessarily followed in your footsteps adopting Bitcoin as their treasury reserve asset? The primary impediment's been uh, FASB or GAAP accounting. The GAAP accounting... It, it, if I made a list, at the top of the list would be uh, indefinite and intangible accounting. It's toxic to a public company balance sheet. That's the number one issue. Uh, I think the number two issue is 
the volatility of Bitcoin, which has been driven uh, in large part by the market manipulation of the crypto exchanges, especially the offshore crypto exchanges. I think that's the number two thing. The, the FTXs of the world trading with 20x or 40x leverage with counterfeit stolen money. I, I think that that's, that's created volatility. I think the third is the reputational um, the reputational toxicity of having the asset class conjoined with the crypto casinos. So if you're a really large, legitimate company, if you bought a billion dollars of Bitcoin and doubled your money, you would be showing that you lost $800 million. I mean, that's it's an obvious uh, strike. And then you'd have to explain to your outside shareholders what Bitcoin was. And then you would also have to deal with all the negative publicity that comes from the blow-ups of a Three Arrows or a Celsius or a BlockFi or a Terra, Luna or FTX. So if you've got a really, really good business and you've got other things, then this is a distraction. You don't really want to get distracted by it. If, um, if you had a business where uh, the majority of your assets were cash, and uh, you saw the cash was generating 0% yield, then it becomes more interesting. You, you just have to be sort of a private company or you have to be closely held. So a lot more private companies and family offices and the like have discovered Bitcoin because they don't have that gap overhang issue. And they've got uh, a smaller group of decision makers that can more easily get comfortable with Bitcoin. And you have to be committed to hold the Bitcoin until the crypto you know, excesses go away, right? Until the crypto industry gets adult supervision and all, and and 98% of the bad actors get squeezed out and the big exchanges all get regulated and they, and they become transparent. At that point, then this is a much easier decision. But we're kind of in this, uh, this transitional period where the industry is transitioning from the first decade, which is entrepreneurial and uh, offshore, and anything goes, kind of wild west, you know. Um, and then uh, we're, you know, the next generation. May, maybe, maybe we get through that chasm by 2024, and from 2024 to 2034, it's more like uh, institutional mainstream adoption, where you have uh, trustworthy, transparent institutions, publicly traded companies, regulated. Uh, institutions, uh, big institutional investors, big public corporations, and they're trading far fewer assets. Maybe they're trading Bitcoin. Maybe they're holding a stable coin that's fully backed by treasuries or something that they trust that publishes its reserves every week, kind of like a, an ETF or a mutual fund would publish its reserves with um, a license, you know, in in New York or London or the like. When we get to that point, then I think the industry grows up. It's 10x to 100x bigger. But right now we're kind of crossing this intermediate transition period. Before 2020, I don't think any institutions would have gotten into the space at all. It was almost impossible to get in the space. And then I think after 2024, they'll probably have worked out a lot of the accounting issues and the regulatory issues, and you'll have big You'll see the Bank of America as the Goldman Sachs or the like or the JP Morgans. They will go ahead and buy and custody, you know, your Bitcoin for you. And there'll be stable coins, you know, who knows? I don't know whether we'll have other digital securities trading or not, because it's not clear whether or not the SEC is going to allow digital securities to trade and how. It's just unclear. But... Um, but I think that right now we're kind of in that right in the middle of that transitional four-year time period. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. As institutions and corporations eventually do decide to move in the space, how do you envision them uh, custodying Bitcoin? Do you do you see a possibility where they may hold their own private keys in like some sort of multi-sig configuration? Or will they always use, you know, trusted custodians, but maybe demand like a proof of reserves type uh, concept to verify that they're not maybe rehypothecating the Bitcoin or they haven't lent it out to someone else? I think you'll see, uh, you know, a layer of approaches, but for the most part, holding your own uh, your own private keys or in a multi-sig relationship 
is going to be much more common with individuals, families, family offices, and and uh, small to mid-sized private corporations. I think that um, with public corporations and large companies or with uh, governments or agencies uh, and, and mutual funds and the like, when they do it, they will do it with a regulated trustee or a regulated custodian like a Bank of New York Mellon or Fidelity or, uh, or a big public organization, uh, even potentially FDIC-insured banks like J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs or the like. And the reason why is there's, uh, those, those organizations aren't even allowed to trust their own CEO. For example, if, if, well, if you were the mayor of New York and you lived in New York, would you want the mayor of New York to walk around with the private keys to $50 billion worth of New York's Bitcoin? No. Like what happens when the mayor of New York uh, gets unelected and there's a new mayor of New York? What if the old mayor won't give the keys to the new mayor? Right. You, you would think, ah, no, okay, so then you get to this issue of, well, I guess we need three people. Okay, would you want three government officials, you know, making, you know, minimum wage or whatever, would you want them to hold $100 billion worth of uh, Bitcoin for, you know, for the FBI or, the, or, or whatever the agency is? What, what's to keep them from just taking it? Right. You don't even trust you don't trust your own employees. Right. Do, do you really want the bank to let a bank teller take two billion dollars of gold bullion home with them at 5 p.m. every night and then bring it back? No. no. So with those kind of organizations, you tend to actually have to have a, a you have to construct something with checks and balances. A lot of checks and balances. They're built into Sarbanes-Oxley controls and other IT controls. Like, there's a segregation of duties where the person, a lot of times the big organization, the person that has the power to grant you access doesn't have the power to move the money. It's two other people, and those two people or those three people, they have to do it, but in conjunction with the outside, you know, an outside vendor. And on the vendor side, there's two or three people that have to sign off. And then, there's, uh, and then there's a set of processes, like everything is logged, everything, right? Like, like uh, the, uh, you can get fired in a, in a bank for not logging the fact that you changed the permission of one person from, you know, you know security clearance 3.2 to security clearance 3.3. You don't have to have done anything. You just, you can get fired for having made it temporarily possible for five minutes to, for someone else to actually change that permission or, or not log it, right? So they've got layers and layers and layers of controls because um, they, need, they need to have a separation of power and checks and balances. So, so for, it's just like um, another example, you know, your, your grandfather's life savings you know, he's got his private keys. He's on the deathbed in the hospice, you know. And now how, when he dies, okay, how do you get the money? <laughs> okay, so you're, okay, so there's 12 kids. Okay, so, the tw so are the 12 kids going to pick one of them to have the keys? Or are they going to say, I think we'd rather have uh, Fidelity or some trust company hold, you know, the, uh, the read the last will and testament. Like the, the escrow company and the lawyer, they're going to read the last will and then the keys are with the trust company. And, you know, what happens if your grandfather decided that he wanted to leave the Bitcoin to the 12 kids, 16 grandkids, and then allow for a bequest to 37 organizations and also to, you know, to potentially the heirs of the grandkids? It, 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 you know, it's pretty obvious, right? It's like, who in your family exactly is going to be carrying the the keys around? And and, and the answer, it's an institutional thing. So, so um, when you get to an institutional scale, you're going to have institutional grade custodians that are expected to outlast all, all the people. You will get fired as the CEO, or you will quit your job. You will leave as the mayor. 
right? You're, uh, if you're uh, running $10 billion of money for a pension funds, you know, there's no way that the pension fund wants you to show up and say, hey, no worries, I have the $10 billion in my hardware wallet, but I gave the extra key to my cousin. Like, no, no way, right? So, um, so this is a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, if you're a hardcore maximalist, you'd say, well, we just liked it when it was just 100 million individuals and they had their own money in their head or their own money in their hardware wallet. Yeah, well, uh, that's the blessing. The curse is if you actually want New York City and Chicago and San Francisco and the United States and uh, 10,000 publicly traded institutions to all buy Bitcoin and embrace Bitcoin, then you're going to have to deal with the control structures of, of those companies. They're going to deal with, uh, you know, big banks, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Fidelity, the, the massive institutions. And um, I, I don't think it's a problem. I think that um, everybody will have the ability to take custody of their own Bitcoin. So if you bought Bitcoin through Fidelity and then you want to put it on your own hardware wallet between ages 40 and 75, you can do it. And if you get a terminal diagnosis of cancer and you feel like you'll be dead in the next six months, you're probably going to take it from your hardware wallet and you're going to put it with your escrow agent or your lawyer or your estate manager or someone and you're going to leave instructions to your loved ones because that's the right thing to do. Or if I get Parkinson's or if I get Alzheimer's, you know, if you diagnose me with Alzheimer's and I my hand shook and I didn't think or, or I was, you know, not going to be able to work on a typewriter or, or a keyboard, I would probably actually put it with a custodian, right, for obvious reasons. So, so the ability to move the Bitcoin between uh, personal custody, multi-sig, to, to move it to, a, to a, a small custodian, a large custodian, I think that's what keeps the entire uh, network uh, honest, and that's what keeps uh, that's what makes the uh, imbues the asset with integrity. The reason that some asset is corrupted is because they have monopoly. So at, at the point that you buy something, but there's only one custodian, like there's only one custodian of gold in New York, and you have to put it with them, and you can't take it out. It's not practical, or it's not legal, or or, or the like. At that point, they get fat, dumb, and happy, just and arrogant. Just like um, if I bought a building in New York City, and there's one neighborhood, uh, one neighborhood watch organization or zoning board, and then one mayor, and one governor of New York, well, they all start to get arrogant. They think it's their building, right? The governor thinks they can pass a New York state tax on the building, and the mayor thinks they can pass a New York City tax on the building. And then the neighborhood zoning board thinks that they can pass a law saying you're not allowed to have a yoga studio in your building and you can't have, you know, you can't have pets in the building or, or you can't or you have to rent control the building. You can't raise the rents in the building. So it's not your asset. It's their asset. And then if you wanted to take custody, personal custody of your building, put it in your pocket and travel to Singapore, that's not happening. Right. You can't wire the building to Singapore. That's not happening. You can't take it with you to Wyoming and put it on your ranch. That's not happening. And so because the asset, it, it, the, I guess my point is the real source of the corruption isn't the fact that you voluntarily enter into a relationship with a counterparty that might provide custody services. That's not the corruption. The corruption comes from the involuntary requirement that you give a monopoly on the custody to the counterparty forever, you know, ad infinitum. And if, and if uh, there's only one counterparty or there's an oligarchy, like uh, if you own a, a million dollars of Apple stock, you know, you can move it between Morgan Stanley and J.P. Morgan, but you have to do it with a DTC network, which is monopoly. And there's only like eight large wire houses where you can move it from. And you can't put it on an Android phone and take it to South Africa with you. So there's not really competition with regard to custody of analog assets or analog securities. And so you end up with NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange and DTC and the big bulge bracket banks getting very comfortable in their oligarchy. And for 30 years, they're not going to lower their fees. And, and they have a monopoly on your ability to borrow or lend, borrow against the asset or, or to generate yield on the asset. 
And so, for example, you know, a million dollars of Bitcoin, you could, in theory, lend it to a counterparty and get yield. Maybe the counterparty will rip you off, right? Maybe they'll fail. I get it, right? That's caveat emptor. You have the flexibility to do it should you wish, but they may, then they may treat you well and they may actually rob you. But if you had a million dollars of Apple stock, you couldn't lend it to anybody. J.P. Morgan might be able to lend it, but you can't. So, um, so I, I think with regard to keys, I, I, we, we will see layered approaches. I could imagine, you know, the hardcore maximalist approach is multi-sig. You handle your own multi-sig with some combination of, you know, hardware wallets and seed phrases and the like. A middle tier is you trust um, Block or you trust some other custodian uh, to handle it for you. Another possibility is eventually multi-sig rolling out of encrypted, you know, if Apple were to do multi-signature with one key in the cloud, one key on, on one of your devices, one key on another Apple device, and you trust that Apple, you know, you might trust Apple for up to some amount of money, right? But then maybe you don't. Maybe you go to, you know, to Google, or maybe you don't. Maybe you go to, you know, a local, you know, bank in some other country. That's all possible, and then, then you've got some variety. And then you've got greater, you know, greater degrees of trust where you go to, um, you know, a custodian and a bank and then a trust company. And ultimately, right, the extreme, right, there's like there's the multi-generational insurance company or trust company that might be holding certain assets for 100 years or longer. And then you have some degree of rights or not degree of rights. So I think all of those are not only likely, they're really necessary because, you know, what I'd like, I would love to see a government agency buy $20 billion worth of Bitcoin. I would not like to see two bureaucrats that work for the government agency hold the keys, right? It's like the one is okay, the other is not okay. So, so that, that will evolve, and, uh, and it's kind of inevitable as as the scale of the institutional interest and in the asset grows, then the sophistication with which people decide to custody the stuff will also evolve. Yeah, I definitely think that seems you know very reasonable, probably reasonable to a lot of uh, even traditional Bitcoin maximalists. You touched on this a little bit. What are your thoughts on like Bitcoin yield products? I mean, we've seen stuff like Celsius and BlockFi blow up. Um, you mentioned like you could lend Bitcoin to anyone. It's your decision if you do that. Um, do you think products like that are, are sustainable? And like, how do you envision them maybe transitioning from now that they're blowing all up? All blowing up. How do you see them maybe in ten to twenty years? I think um, a lot of the crypto uh, services have been poorly engineered. Like they they had defective economics, defective ethics, and defective engineering. For example, like. If if I took a million dollars of Bitcoin, I loaned it to you, and you took it and put it into some DeFi protocol backed by Terra Luna, right? you bought UST. Okay, that's a defective yield approach, right? And it's defective because you know you're you're generating some air token that you're printing, uh, and you're paying the twenty percent yield with air token printing. Okay, that's economically not sound. That's ethically not sound because probably it wasn't disclosed. They never disclosed the full extent of the assets, right? And it's technically, it's engineering not sound because the natural frequency of the network was so high that uh, in the event that the price moves down for a couple of days, the entire network goes unstable, shakes itself apart, and collapses, right? So we, we could talk about any of those for hours and hours. But the point is, that's a bad idea. On the other hand... Um, you could probably come up with a responsible way to generate yield. I'll give you, you know, I'll give you another way. Um, if, um, if, I, uh, if I took a million dollars of Bitcoin and I had an account with the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange uh, lets me trade futures. If the futures are, are actually in backwardation where there's a time, uh, just in the past few weeks, there's a time where you could sell a million dollars of Bitcoin and you could buy it back at a 4% discount because the futures price was 4% lower than the current price. 
you have to wait six weeks to buy it back. Okay, does that happen? Yeah, sometimes it works the other direction, right? Where where um, you could uh, buy the Bitcoin or you could sell the Bitcoin in the future and buy it in the present, right? And then there's a, a, a different direction. In that case, you could generate a yield. You wouldn't be um, taking a directional position on the Bitcoin. You would be taking counterparty risk against the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Okay, so there's always a risk, right? But what is the risk, right? That would be actually, uh, that would generate yield off the volatility of the Bitcoin. That it, and, and how much yield would you get? Well, the truth is you don't know, right? If you're honest, you would say, if you want to trust the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is, is not unreasonable, it's got trillions of dollars trading on it. It's like all the derivatives of the Western world or in the United States are trading on the CME or the LSE. It's not unreasonable, but you might not trust it. But let's say you did. If you want to take that risk, you might generate 1% or 2% yield. You might generate 0% yield in a year. You might generate 4% yield in a year. But you put your, uh, you put your Bitcoin with me, and then when I see an opportunity you know, to go long or short to capture that inefficiency in the futures market. I will do that and then I will charge you 20, you know, I will charge you 10% of what I generate and the other 90% will come back to you and, and you have to trust two parties. You have to trust the CME, the, the exchange you're trading on, and then you have to trust maybe the, um, you know, the prime broker or the, uh, the person executing that strategy. Okay, and, the, and um, the SEC would say, well, you have to then publish, you know, who's the company, what's your balance sheet, what's your background, do you have any criminal convictions, <laughs> you know, have you ever been found guilty of, of cheating people? And, and that way, the people that would invest with you would see that you're licensed and, that you're, and they would decide whether they trust you. And if they trust you, maybe they can generate a sporadic 1%, 2% yield or 3% yield and still hold a Bitcoin. You see the two extremes, like one is doing some batshit crazy thing with an, an offshore random entrepreneur that may or may not be trustworthy that's probably going to blow up. The other is taking an informed risk in order to generate a yield. I do think that there are uh, ways that you can generate yield using the capital over time. I think that uh, the the state of the crypto banking market or, or the industry today is such that all of the players in the business, BlockFi, Voyager, Three Arrows, Genesis, you know, FTX, um, they were all taking you know, Celsius. They were taking ridiculous, insane risks, you know, putting your money in, you know, an air token, putting your money in a DeFi protocol, just outright gambling it, right? These... Any kind of all the crypto stakings are just ridiculous, insane risk because you're betting on an air token that has uh, that has no theoretical substance. Uh, so most people have, uh, you know, have suffered or lost money chasing that yield. It's the, the reason that MicroStrategy never uh, loaned out our Bitcoin to anybody uh, for any yield, even though we were people propositioned us right and left all of the usual suspects that you can imagine propositioned us. But, you know, the, the view is, well, I can't trust you. You're not a publicly traded company with a, with a transparent balance sheet. Look, if JP Morgan had come to me and said, we will give you 4% yield on your Bitcoin and we will back it with the balance sheet of JP Morgan and we're FDIC insured, would I have taken the yield on my free Bitcoin? Maybe. Right. It depends on the other strings attached, but, you know, why not? Right. I mean, so so there is a circumstance under which if the bank that's propositioning you is is um, well capitalized enough. And if the contract looks to be to be uh, solid, maybe you would. Maybe you wouldn't. Maybe J.P. Morgan would say, look, we can gamble your Bitcoin on a, on a Deribit offshore exchange or something. And if we lose it, then we lose it. But if but we get, you know, 20 percent of the gains while we're gambling, I wouldn't have done that deal even with them. Right. If it was uh, it was a, a no recourse engagement. So right now, the industry is not quite mature enough. But theoretically, right, it is possible to construct a responsible yield generating strategy if 
you know, if you have um, a responsible, well-run company, institution, that, you know, people get wrapped around the axle on regulated, like regulated is a bad word in the crypto world or the Bitcoin world. But replace regulated with transparent. Like if the person that approaches you says, I'm going to publish my balance sheets and they'll be audited by PricewaterhouseCoopers and you can read them every month. And I'm going to sign the Sarbanes-Oxley statement and agree to be held criminally liable if I lie to you. And, right, I've got, you know, I've got a track record of 30 years and I've got a board of directors and here's who they are. And this is their background. If they were transparent with you, you would be more likely to do business with them. It doesn't mean there's no risk. You can get ripped off by a publicly traded company. You can lose money on a publicly traded company. But if you consider all the counterparties in the world, the most credit worthy counterparty, right, the the ones that are most transparent that have that, that offer the least counterparty risk are uh, United States based publicly traded companies because they have the the U.S. has the highest degree of, of civil civil and criminal liability for any malfeasance. And they also have the highest degree of disclosure requirements if if I got off the phone with you and my CFO called me and said, hey, guess what? We, some bad, something bad just happened, you know, or something good just happened. If something bad happened and we lost, you know, 10,000 Bitcoin or if something good happened and all of a sudden someone gave us 10,000 Bitcoin and it was deemed like material to our shareholders, there's a clock ticking and we have a certain number of hours four business days sometimes is the max, before we have to put it in 8K and we have to tell everybody in the world. And what's drummed into your head if you run a publicly traded company is, is at 9.30 a.m. on Monday morning, people are going to sell your stock. And if it turns out your company's worth more because of something that happened over the weekend and they're selling it, they're going to feel like they got ripped off, you see, because they sold too cheap. And on the other end, if something bad happened that makes the company worth less over the weekend and they're buying your stock, right, then those people are going to feel like they got ripped off, right? So when you think about it like that, like a, and that's the way a public company thinks, and that's the way a regulated entity also thinks. It's like every time someone deposits money in my bank, right, they're trusting me. So if I have material information about, this, about the, the status of the bank, or I'm just monkeying around with the back-end control systems, I'm putting my depositors' funds at risk, right? That's, that's a problem. So you need those kind of rules in order to get comfortable doing business with the counterparty. And you can see what happens when people don't have a clear set of norms. Like at FTX, they didn't have a problem misusing their customers' money, trading against their customers, manipulating the price of, of their own assets, issuing their own assets, you know, it's conflict of interest six different ways. But, you know, if you're making up the rules, you would say, well, there's no rule against having a six-way conflict of interest. Now, the, ultimately, they, they will have been shown to have, have broken local laws and local regulations. It's just going to take a while for the lawyers to sort through it all. But but the thing that the thing that keeps a company safe and the thing that keeps you safe, like if I was giving advice to you, why should I trust a publicly traded uh, company, a publicly traded bank in America? The reason that it's more trustworthy is not because just just because there's a lot of rules. I mean, there is an army of lawyers and accountants that are watching all those rules and filing all those forms. There is a CEO and a CFO that understand the rules and they have to sign the Sarbanes-Oxley statement. They know they're civilly and criminally liable if they lie. Right. But that's not the only reason. The other reason is because everybody involved in the institution from the top to the bottom knows the norms and knows what's expected. So if the CFO walks in and says, hey, um, we just lost a few billion dollars, but let's not tell anybody. Well, the junior accountant or the treasurer that works for them is going to say, no, no, this is wrong. This is going to end my career. I'm not going to lie for you. So you, so, so you have a culture of virtue, where even if the leaders wanted 
to lie, cheat, or steal. The people that work for them won't lie, cheat, and steal because their loyalty to the culture and to the law and or their fear of the law is greater than their loyalty to their boss. So it's like, yeah, I like you, but I'm not going to jail for you. And so the problem offshore and in these uh, hazy regimes is there's not clear norms, so it's not clear. For example, Sam Bankman-Fried was like breaking who knows how many different laws, bright lines in the U.S., but if you kind of obscure and say, well, I'm not, it's not obvious that you're not allowed to self-deal in the Bahamas, then maybe, maybe a, an honest person working for him would have said, well, I guess it's not, you know, we all knew it was illegal to do it in the U.S. That's why they're in Nassau, right? We all knew, right? But yet, in order to run an institution or a bank, you have to hire college-educated lawyers and accountants and programmers. So you have to have smart people. You can't convince them to break the law, right, in, in an institution where it's clear. When it's not clear, right, then you need to say, well, you know, that's a U.S. rule, but that just kind of slows us down, and that's why we're located here in the Bahamas, because, you know, we need to be more flexible. We need to move faster. And someone's like, you know, you wouldn't get someone with 30 years' experience that, that had good judgment to buy that notion, but you would get like 20-somethings, you might get some 20-somethings and 30-somethings that are that uh, they, they're not partners at Goldman Sachs, right? They're, they're like, well, this is my chance to be richer than a partner at Goldman Sachs and skip the next 15 years of work. And in like 22 months, I got to the top of my industry by cutting corners. Well, they don't know they're cutting corners, right? Like, they, they don't know what they don't know, right? They just, they, they took the plane, they flew it too fast, they ripped the wings off. And as they're plunging to earth on fire, it occurs to them that there's a reason why more experienced test pilots don't fly the plane that fast, or the engineers told them not to fly the plane that fast, but then it's too late. Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, it seems very obvious how FTX, you know, blew up, you know, located in the Bahamas. Why do you think, um, you know, firms like Sequoia or, or BlackRock were, you know, fighting to invest money into FTX? I mean, I think the problem in the crypto industry, right, it, it comes down to greed, arrogance, foolishness, and speed, right? People are either going too fast, right? Uh, they're throwing caution to the wind, they're getting too greedy, or they just make foolish decisions. With, uh, with all the, the VC that invested in, uh, in FTX, they just saw something growing insanely fast, you know, 10x over the course of a year, and they just got greedy. They thought, well, this is growing real fast. We got to get in on this, and then they're in a hurry. So, so uh, they didn't do their diligence. And when Sam said, well, we got to move fast, instead of saying, well, you need a board of directors, you need a more seasoned management team, et cetera, they just kind of enabled that kind of bad behavior. Um, I think that that uh, throwing money at everybody encourages people to look the other way too. For example, I think there's like $5.5 billion on the um, FTX Ventures balance sheet. And so FTX Venture was investing hundreds of millions of dollars in the same VC that they were taking money from. In fact, more money went to Sequoia uh, from FTX Ventures than came to FTX from Sequoia. So think about that for a second. So, so in a sense, what Sam did was he created a, re, uh, a recycling fraud. Okay, so I print a token, I create a billion dollars of the token, then I borrow a billion dollars against the token, then I invest a, a billion dollars in other companies and financial players and, and other cryptos with my borrowed billion. Then I get them to buy my tokens. And, you know, and if, um, if the leverage is 100 to 1, right, if I had $5 billion of FTT and, there, and it only took $10 million of trading activity per day to move the price, then uh, I could take the $5 billion and give it to celebrities, politicians, journalists. I could give it to venture capitalists. I could give it to money managers. I could, you know, I, I can give it in all sorts of ways. I'm investing in you, right? And so I, I just shower money on everybody. And then I say, well, come back and put your, uh, and put your trades with me open an account with my exchange, 
I'm going to invest $150 million in your fund uh, so you can do crypto token trading, but come back and open an account with me. You put that, that money goes to you. It comes right back to me. Now, uh, you know, it actually is, it gets wired to, Al to Alameda. Alameda wires it to some money manager. The money manager wires the money back to Alameda. Alameda keeps the money, credits the money manager with $100 million on FTX. The money manager buys FTT and Serum and Solana token. Those tokens go up by billions of dollars in value. Alameda says it's got more money. It then posts that as collateral to take loans from a BlockFi or a Voyager or, or a Genesis or someone. They take that money in cash. They funnel it back in the exchange. They dump that on other players. And so it was like an example of counterfeit money corrupting everything it touched. But it's looping through a leverage amplifier. Right? I mean, the real twist here is is um, if only 1% to 2% of the, of the token uh, trades in a float, and if I have 20x leverage, I could have $10 billion worth of an asset and have $100 million trading every day, but with 20x leverage, I only need $5 million to be the entire, the entire supply, right? So if you gave me $25 million in cash, I could uh, manipulate the price of a $10 billion air token. Now now you're like, okay, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, I'm going to borrow $10 billion of Bitcoin or stablecoin from, uh, from unsuspecting creditors. Like every company that went bankrupt, you know, because they made bad loans, well, th those were, in essence, the suckers, right? They they made bad decisions. Why in the world would you give someone $100 million of real cash for $100 million of FTT? Like, are you out of mind, right? The, so, uh, so that's one way. You're basically committing credit fraud. And the other way is you, um, you attract a lot of people that want to get onto your crypto exchange. You know, they're chasing after those easy gains. Maybe they're a multi, you know, they're like crypto coin crypto token traders maybe they're leveraged traders who knows what they are but you're attracting them with something too good to be true right so they come to your crypto casino they play they put their assets there and you know it's such a it's such an amusing scheme right it's unethical to make money by uh, by pumping an air token like FTT. It's also unethical to follow, to buy FTT and follow the person pumping and manipulating the price because that's securities fraud and you're actually engaging, you're, you're, you're basically following the securities fraud behavior to actually pick up your own yield. So that's unethical. But the joke is that there's no honor among thieves. So the guy that's actually creating the securities fraud that's pumping up the air token is also ripping off the people that co-invest with him without telling them. And so he's funneling their money in order to buy whatever, all the apartments or, or to buy politicians or the like. So you can see why it happens. It, it works fine if you have a few. What, what you need is you need a few levered air tokens where 90% or 95% of the issuance doesn't trade. Right. It wouldn't work with Bitcoin because too much of it trades. It wouldn't work with uh, Apple stock or or some legit because those things are trading in regulated markets. It would work well with SRM or FTT or, you know, some other random yo-yo coin because there's a lot of lock supply. And what they're doing is they're, they're using their own closely held supply or lock supply as collateral. By the way, who would give you a loan against locked collateral or locked tokens? Nobody in their right mind, but, but you don't need to find anybody rational because you own the bank. You just give it to yourself, right? I mean, Sam, in essence, is giving himself the loan against the air token locked. And he's telling himself, in fact, he actually said it publicly, he said, we conservatively valued the locked tokens at 50% of market value. Okay, well, that... That, by the way, Joe, is that's like me saying, in theory, I could issue $10 billion of MSTR stock in theory in the future. So I'm going to go ahead and secretly issue myself $10 billion of MSTR stock, and then I'm going to value it at $5 billion. I'm going to post it into my own account at my own company, 
And then I'm going to withdraw $5 billion of cash from my customers without telling them that I'm just going to, to my hedge fund. And then I'm going to give a loan of $4 billion to myself without telling anybody. And then, uh, and then, of course, at some point, somebody finds out that, you know, that there's like $10 billion of like fake non-issued stock out there and they sell the stock and then everything crashes. And then I go, oh, I, I didn't, under, I think my position was a bit larger. It was messy accounting. I didn't realize it, right? But of course, it's like on the surface, it's utterly ridiculous, right? But, but, uh, but you get away with it because the same people that are trading the air tokens don't really understand, they either don't understand securities law or they don't care, right? Like if you understood securities law, like you couldn't buy a penny, right? I mean, like I, I, I would never buy a penny of a crypto token because they're unregistered securities, which means they're being manipulated in an unethical fashion by a central party. Whether or not the central party knows they're manipulating it or they don't understand. Some people generally don't understand the ethics. It doesn't occur to them that if you change the monetary policy of the token, you have, you have manipulated the value of the token, thereby defrauding investors in the token, right? When, when you turn off you know, yields to, to miners in the ETH ecosystem and you shift it to stakers, you have defrauded everyone that bought ETH based on ETH mining, and you have, you have actually robbed the miners of their property, right? You have devalued their property. So normally when you devalue the property of your securities holders, right, this class action lawsuit, right, they would sue you because you stole from them. You know, just like you know, in any public company, if you just got up and you said, we've just decided to unilaterally you know, devalue your security. We've issued another class of security and given it to our friends and we didn't tell you. You're going to get sued, right? So so I think um, the people in the business, they didn't really understand that. Either they just don't, they just don't understand, that they're not sophisticated enough, or they don't care. And, uh, and they, if you don't care, it's because you just were greedy, right? You're, you're willing to accept the fact that someone is manipulating a central token against the interest of outsiders in an unfair fashion. You don't care. And you're willing to you're willing to accept the fact that they will continue to do it because you're hoping you're a mercenary. You're hoping to get in, make a quick buck, and get out. Right? There there's nothing right about you know, you, you issue a token like Solana right? And then you lock it up and then someone manipulates the price up by a factor of 10 and then they sell it, right? And then you had, you know, you had a preference and it was never taken public. There's nothing right about that, right? You can't, you can't justify it because what you did was you engaged in, in insider dealing, self-dealing securities manipulation in order to take advantage of somebody, right? If you weren't taking advantage of somebody, you would have taken the company public, Right, the, the way that you sell securities to the general public is you go public, you file a registration statement with the SEC, you announce the, the governance, the risk factors, the initial distribution, all the conflicts of interest, all the related party transactions. You get a sign-off from the regulators. Then after you've fully disclosed enough information, you get your books audited by a trustworthy auditor. You know, you get a legal opinion. You know, after you've got your books and records in place and you made all your full disclosures, then you're then you're allowed to trade on a public exchange. That's the right way to do it. It's not just the it's not just the compliant way to do it, it's just the ethical way to do it. Right? I mean people that the blind spot is if you hate the regulators, it, it doesn't occur to you that the, the the rules are meant to encourage ethical behavior. If the regulars didn't exist, it wouldn't change the requirement. You should not lie, cheat, or steal, right? You should be honest and forthcoming with people when you induce them into a financial relationship with you, right? That Probably that would be part of the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, 10,000 years ago, people probably had the idea that you shouldn't cheat people to trust you with their money, right? But that, that, that hole, that gray area exists in the crypto world, Right. And, and uh, malicious actors exploit that blind spot. 
And Sam was the most colorful of them, but he's not the only one that exploited it. I mean, uh, there are plenty of people that basically exploit that. And, uh, you know, it's the industry is going to have to get beyond that. That, that. that bad behavior has to go away if the industry is going to grow up and is going to, and is going to mature. Yeah. In a way, it was kind of healthy that this blew up now rather than it get 10x larger and have capital more misallocated. Um, so I think it's kind of a good thing that it got, went ahead and knocked it out. Um, or do you have any comments on that? Yeah, we're getting hopefully close to the end of a deleveraging cycle where we're squeezing out the, um, the malicious operators, the incompetent operators, the wildcat banks, the c- casinos. Right, the the yep. con men, not not quite f- done, but getting close to the end of it. Um, it's it's a challenge because the regulators allow a lot of the stuff to continue, and they've uh, and they've gone fairly slow in the cleaning up of the industry, and uh, and so they're bit, you know their enforcement actions are 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 slow and only partially effective, but um, but they're, they're, the market itself, the market economy, is cleaning itself up. Because, you know, even if the regulators don't tag and shut down the next 100 goofball crypto schemes, uh, you know, you have intelligent people that have watched the meltdown of all of these uh, crypto tokens, uh, you know, including like the Bitcoin maximalist. And they tend to tag them and call them out one at a time, you know, pretty aggressively. Yeah, definitely. Ultimately, the way it gets cleaned up, by the way, is, is the... The really foolish, greedy, arrogant crypto actors—they just lose all their money. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, like the the venture capitalists that were supporting this and endorsing this—they lost their money, and so they've been discredited. And then the crypto hedge funds, the three arrows, et cetera, that were supporting this—they lost their money, right? So people are saying, "Why are you investing in this unethical, poorly engineered, batshit crazy idea?" We are making money while well, you lost all your money, so hopefully you'll stop, right? So I, you know, and and uh, the actors like Celsius and BlockFi and Voyager, they were making crazy loans and engaging in extremely risky behavior. They lost all their money; they're shut down. So the failure of all of those entities you know, is in itself kind of a natural remedy in the market. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think this is probably a great spot to, to wrap this up. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts? Maybe like, you know, what's the next catalyst for the next bull run or what do you want to leave people with? Yeah, I, I think the catalyst for the next bull run is is an educated market and an educated set of of uh, policymakers and regulators and educated media. And uh, what we've gotten over the past six to nine months is a very expensive education, right? People learned a lot from Terra Luna. They learned a lot from Three Eras. They learned a lot from the meltdowns of Voyager and Celsius. They learned a lot from FTX. I think that if you uh, if you look at uh, coverage of of um, Bitcoin and the crypto world on CNBC, on Bloomberg, in the New York Times, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, in uh, in most mainstream media, it's much more sophisticated today than it was 12 months ago. I think uh, I, you know before we say you know Bitcoin, not shitcoin, you know, but now you say oh Bitcoin, not FTT. Do you understand the difference? Like, oh, oh, I get it now. Yeah, uh, Bitcoin, not Luna. Now, I oh yeah, the Luna thing went to zero. Why? Because it was backed by nothing, right? We used to say proof of work is better than proof of stake. Well, why is it better, right? Proof of stake could do whatever you want. Well, proof of stake is what FTT was. It was backed by one person. That was a mistake, right? You know, uh, now now when you try to explain why is it that you would want to have 10 gigawatts of energy and millions of Bitcoin mining rigs running the network, it's because you're actually backed by something tangible. And and the alternative is you have Luna and FTT and Serum backed by Air. And uh, so I, I think for the industry to move forward, the market has to grow up and be educated. And when senators 
like senators didn't really understand the difference between um, Bitcoin and even Ethereum, right? As late as like two months ago, three months ago, a lot of people in the Senate said, well, Bitcoin and Ethereum, they're both commodities. And of course, Bitcoin's a commodity, but Ethereum's not a commodity. Ethereum is, is a security. It's a staked token. And uh, there's nothing backing it but the trust that you have in a small handful of people and small organizations. So, um, you know, when we had uh, the bozeman Stabenow bill that kind of didn't distinguish the difference, when you had regulators in, in D.C. that didn't know the difference, I think that was tr when you have crypto lobbyists and when you have uh, mainstream media that don't know the difference, the, the industry is held back. And we really needed to have the meltdown of, of the crypto casinos and the meltdown of these crypto tokens and the meltdown of these unstable, you know, unstable altcoins like UST in order for Congress and the Senate and the administration to recognize, you know, what, what these asset classes are. And I think that... Um, we're now getting to the point where people are starting to recognize there's something that's uh, a cryptocurrency, maybe like Circle or Tether, and, and for it to be an ethical, properly engineered, economically sound cryptocurrency, you're going to have to have a public issuer that's transparent uh, in its assets that then backs the uh, token with no-risk assets. So if I issue $100 billion worth of stablecoin backed by $100 billion worth of short-term U.S. treasuries, and if I'm a publicly traded company and I disclose my balances every week, then maybe I will be trusted. Uh, there's no guarantee. Uh, there's still counterparty risk. But the point is that would be the foundation to issue a digital currency like a circle or like a tether, and there's a market for that. There's a, there's a, a growing awareness of a digital commodity Bitcoin is the only one. The chair of the SEC has said Bitcoin's the digital commodity. The chair of the CFTC has said Bitcoin is the only digital commodity. This is really critical. The fact that you now have regulators in D.C. that universally acknowledge there is one digital commodity, and, they, and you have a set of people that now understand a digital commodity is an asset without an issuer, I think that's a really big development in the industry, and it's a milestone. And 12 to 24 months ago, there's still a lot of confusion. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people were trying to legislate what is a commodity. Like, you can't make Ethereum a commodity by passing a law. It's, not, you know, it's like trying to pass a law that makes, like, gold a security or makes oil a security. You can't make it a security. It's a commodity. And you can't do the opposite. You can't make Facebook stock a commodity by passing a law. Guess what? The only two commodities are oil, natural gas, or oil and Facebook stock. You can't pass laws that make something a different asset class. And so we have, uh, we've had some, some deadlock there because of confusion and because of that tug of war we were stuck in that deadlock because you had people like FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried dropping hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars to corrupt the political process. They were corrupting the politicians. They were trying to interfere. They were inserting into that legislation things that would be beneficial to the crypto industry and the air token producers that would be detrimental to the world detrimental to the $100 trillion securities industry, detrimental to every citizen on earth, detrimental to Bitcoin, detrimental to anybody that believes in truth and honesty and justice. So they were definitely malefactors. Um, they were trying to, in essence, bribe the CFTC. They wanted to actually funnel a bunch of crypto exchange fees into the CFTC in return for light reg uh, regulation or no regulation. So that was the status quo six months ago. And if the crypto industry had continued uh, to succeed with pumping of the air tokens like Terra and Luna and FTT and Serum, and if they continued to be able to run this you know, crypto exchange like FTX and continue to steal through Alameda and then move money through all sorts of dark pools, then you might have had a very corrupt system 
Not to mention the fact that they're literally corrupting the journalists and the mainstream media that are writing the story by showering hundreds of millions of dollars on them or their cronies, if not billions and billions. So we've hit a significant milestone, and the milestone is a, a virtuous one. The meltdown of this crypto complex means that, that um, the ability to corrupt the establishment with counterfeit money has been severely impaired hasn't completely stopped. There's still some transgression, but it's definitely been impaired. And uh, I think there are a lot of honest people that are genuinely interested in doing the right thing for the world that now have had their eyes opened. And so the, our ability to move forward with ethically sound, economically sound, uh, technically sound digital currencies, digital commodities, and or digital securities is much greater. And I, and I think that's where we are today. So I, I think that this will be remembered as a difficult year and a transition year, but 2023 should be much better. And 2024, we should be picking up a good amount of momentum. And I think we get into 2025, and I think then we're really in the main uh, – early years of institutional adoption in a big way. And and my advice to anybody is, you know, huddle. Nice. I like it a lot. It's definitely safe to say that there is no second best. Michael, thanks for coming on. I think you doing these podcasts is great for people trying to learn more about Bitcoin and the crypto space broadly. So thank you again and um, looking forward to talking again soon. Yeah, thanks for hosting me. Of course.